What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 50 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have led with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you, as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the space and the place that God has put us. Can you believe we're at episode 50? For all of you that have been along for this journey, thank you. I couldn't have imagined back in uh, the summer of 2017 when this dream was beginning to get on paper and and uh, we we're beginning to get the things together that needed to happen and and uh, the guests together that needed to happen. I never dreamed, number one, we would have so many people listening. Number two, I never dreamed we would have some of the incredible guests that we've had. And number three, I would have never dreamed I would have enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed it. So thanks for, for selfishly helping me out a little bit and uh, listening along as we've gone along. I pray that this podcast is adding value to your leadership, value to your life, and value to you as a spiritual leader, not just a leader, but a spiritual leader. We are, uh, we are honored to be on the journey with you and to the team that helps me each and every podcast get this out from Will Compton on our tech crew at North Star, who leads that for us, to Jeremy, who puts together all the graphics, and CA, who puts out all the tweets, and SK, who does graphics uh, that go out on uh, Instagram. Thank you. Thank you for all that you've done. You guys are special to me, and it is a blast. Well, today, we get to celebrate episode 50 with probably the guest that I know of all the ones we've interviewed the most. His name is Ira Blumenthal. Ira has uh, had quite the career, incredible athletic background while he was in college. He uh, today is the founder and president of Co-Opportunities, an Atlanta-based consulting company that's counseled world-class clients such as Coca-Cola, Nestle, Kroger, McDonald's, Harrah's, American Airlines, Disney, United Artists, Marriott, Exxon, Walmart, among any many, many others. Ira is a renaissance man. He is a thinker on a level of very, very few people that I've ever met. He is an author. He is a uh, professor. He served at both University of Notre Dame and Michigan State University as an executive in residence, along with Georgia State University School of Hospitality. He is uh, a phenomenal father, a phenomenal husband. He is a great friend. His newest endeavor is working with the Pat Summit and creating the Pat Summit Leadership Group, where he's the co-founder and chairman of the Executive Advisory Council, taking this historic women's basketball coach and taking her life and taking it now into the marketplace to help other leaders and young ladies be all that they were equipped to be. I don't know anybody else like him. 
I don't have many others on the face of this planet. I can say that challenge me the way that he challenges me. So today is a blessing for you to sit down with me and to listen in to this incredible, incredible friend, incredible, incredible man, and now a Christ follower, share his journey of faith and leadership with you. So pull up a chair and listen in to my time with Ira Blumenthal. Well, Ira, it is an honor to get to sit down with you today on Lynch with a Leader. This is this is one I have been looking so forward to, buddy. Well, ditto here, and uh, uh, you've always been a, a dear friend and and one of our family leaders. So I'm excited, and uh, you know, um, hope I can give you the information that might help someone else. Well, I think you know there's there's certain people in your life that are go to people, and when I think of Ira. I think of a leader. Is, is that something that's always been natural for you? Is that something you've just sort of grown up that way? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's natural. I think sometimes you fall into leadership. You know, sometimes a coach turns around and says, you know, you are the man. Or or sometimes no one else volunteers and you figure maybe you ought to raise your hand. You know, I, I, I think that everyone might be born with some leadership skills or competencies but it has to be developed, you know, and I've always been fortunate enough to be in a position where someone called me to be a leader and I had to learn, you know, kind of on the job training, if you will. But um, I always liked the idea, though, of, of being important or, or making a difference or, you know, uh, in some way, shape or form, being part of a team, but not necessarily, you know, following the other end of it too, Mike, which I think is important, just like all of us. We have role models. Sometimes we have role models that don't even know there are role models. And I look around me when I was in high school and I saw the guy who was captain of the football team, okay, or, or, the, or, or the, the, the lady that was president of the class. And you kind of want to be like them. Mm-hmm. You know, gee whiz, they're respected or, you know, you know, people listen to what they have to say. And you start saying, wait, I want to be like Mike. Yeah. You know, I, I want to be like Mike. So in some ways, you know, I think I may have had some competencies that would have led to leadership. But it was something I wanted to do. You know, I, I also realized, too, that it's a lonely profession. You know, leadership can be lonely, you know. So but, uh, uh, yeah, uh, it, it's always been something that I've, I've always liked to do and enjoyed doing. And, um, you know, no different than you. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. But, boy, the title coach. I'd take that title anytime. And even today, when a 35-year-old kid I coach comes over to me and says, Hi, Coach B. Mm. I was their leader, and that made me feel good. So it's something that really is prideful. Grew up in New York, grew up with a great family. I know you're so close to your family, and we'll get into your family, here into your, your kids here in a few minutes. You grew up in New York. What did you learn by watching your father and his career? What were some things you intuitively, he probably never sat you down and said, Ira, I want you to pay attention to the things I'm teaching you, but yet you picked up a lot of those things you learned from your dad. Yeah, you know, my, my dad was a poor kid. He he was um, raised in Brooklyn, New York. His dad died when he was 13 years old. Mm. He had to go to work, you know, and try to help support the family. Of course, you know, uh, many, many decades later, he admitted that sometimes he'd go to the pool hole and shoot pool and try to hustle, or he'd play handball for money. He was a great athlete. Eventually, he was a minor league baseball player. But the one thing I saw was my dad never stopped working. Mm. He never stopped working. And <laughs> Maybe the apple in the tree, I guess. But, you know, I always remember that, you know, sometimes even at dinner, 
he would have paper in front of him. He might make a note of something he was thinking about. And he was always fixing something around the house. And, and I remember once, you know, as I was thinking about going into business, when I turned to my dad and I said, and he was a successful business guy later in his life. And I said, dad, what's the key to being successful in business? And he said, I've never done business. I've always done friendship. And I've never forgotten that. Wow. And it, if I ever learned anything from my dad, besides, you know, his his love and his work ethic, you know, and his sense of family, which, you know, I certainly, what they see is what they be, and mm-hmm. I, I'm a byproduct of it, was I mirrored my career that way. Maybe on purpose, maybe not on purpose. Mm-hmm. But to me, I don't know that I've ever been an expert in a lot of the businesses I've been in but I had great relationships and maybe it was about learning how to listen or learning how to question or learning how to empathize or remembering someone's kid named Jason, who was a soccer player. And when I saw him, I'd say, Hey, by the way, how's Jason doing? So I think if I learned anything, it was probably more on the people and relationship side. You know, I was really, it's so funny when you say that I never got to meet your dad, but knowing you, I would think you were, you were describing yourself. Because you're a voracious note taker, you always have a new idea, and relationships are one of your strengths. Well, you know, it's It's so interesting. It it is. But, you know, there's a time in all our lives where we look in the mirror and we say, oh, no, I'm becoming my father. (laughs) You know, and whether it's your ears, your eyes, your hands, your hair, or even your expressions, you know. And, you know, when my dad passed, my son Eric— read a line from Dan Fogelberg's um, song, uh, Leader of the Band. Mm-hmm. And it was a great line in there saying, I am a living legacy to the leader of the band. You know, and I, and I think that, you know, every one of us have mentor, coach, dad, best friend, uh, and uh, advisor, counselor. And he was. And I, I think I wanted to be like him. You know, I, I wanted to be able to, you know, be in a social situation and get along with a lot of people. You know, I wanted to be able to, you know, build relationships. So I, I, I think, quite frankly... If someone said to me that I was like my dad, I'd feel really proud. That's you know, awesome. Kind of what I wanted to be. That's you know? so awesome. That is so awesome. I know sports were a huge part of your journey growing up. You went on, you became a college athlete. What was it about sports that lit you up, that you went, this is this is just part of who I am? What was it about it? Well, I, I think, you know, like many people, I embrace challenge. Mm. and. Throughout my life, business career, I'd think about something. I'd work hard to achieve it. And once I did, I moved along to the next thing. I didn't want to live there because I accomplished that. And and with sport, whether it was being able to lift a little more weight in the weight room or whether to run a little bit faster or whether it be to turn a team around that maybe was losing or, or to win or to continuous win or whatever it, it was, sport to me was always a challenge. And, you know, and it's it's trite. I'm not the first one that's ever said that, but it's a microcosm of life. You know, in life, we got out of bounds. You know, we got rules. I don't care if you're going 56 miles an hour and the sign says 55, you can get arrested. You can Mm -hmm. get pulled over. So in sport, you've got referees. They can blow a whistle on you. You've got out of bounds. You've got coaches. You've got teammates. You've got adversaries, people that want to see you not win. you got cheerleaders screaming for you, and you got cheerleaders screaming again. That's life. So to me, you know, attacking the world of sport was on a couple of levels really about life. And it was life skills, number one. Number two, 
I never really got into individual sports, you know. Yeah, I played a little tennis here or there, a racquetball here or there. But it was football. It was lacrosse. It was team sport. There was something about that. That was instant friendship. And it was a way for me also to interact. I don't, I don't think I did this by plan. When I'm looking back decades yeah, later, yeah. wait a minute now. I've got friends of all ethnicities, all sizes, all shapes, all backgrounds. You know, kids that were raised on, on a farm that got up at 5 in the morning, okay, to, you know— to cut the hay, people that were raised in the inner city. And that was because the team is made up of so many different parts. So I would say sport to me was a microcosm of life. It was a way to really interact with lots and lots of people. And when I look at my own sons, okay, all three of my sons were college athletes. If they have to get up at five o'clock in the morning for a meeting, they're up at five o'clock in the morning. They've been disciplined. They've got time management. They learn how to win. They learn how to lose. They learn how to rise above. Okay. They learn how to work hard. So to me, um, it was invaluable. You know, I I just read an article, interesting article. Ernst & Young came out with a study recently. 92% of women in C-suites in America today had a sports background. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean... They played Division One basketball. It could have been ultimate Frisbee with their friends. It says something. Why? It, it, it puts you in a position where you have to work hard. And oh, by the way, if you, if you don't work hard, someone will pass you by. And that happens in the world of sales. So to me, sport was everything. I, I, would, I would advise any parent I know, whether your son or daughter is ever going to be a major leaguer, it's not important. But you want them to go out there. You want them to shake someone's hand after they lose. That's right. You know, uh, and... You know, so I, it was always very important to me. And but you know, it's interesting though. I love playing, but I loved coaching mm. almost more. Mm. You know, I, I was an average football player. I was a good lacrosse player. You know, played on World Cup stuff and all that. But I will tell you that I love the idea of putting it all together. The science of football was more exciting to me than the art of football. So, mm. but. Yeah. Did you think while you were in that at Towson State, did you think, man, maybe this is going to be what I do for my career? Was there a time well, that you it was. thought that? It, it was, actually. You know, I, you know, some of your listeners may not know this, but 1972 is a pivotal year in the world of sport and in the world of America. You see, up until 1972, every university in America had a freshman team. Everyone. University of Georgia had a freshman football team. University of Minnesota had a freshman basketball team. Because the NCAA did not allow freshmen to play varsity. Mm. In those days, I'm not going to criticize it or condemn it, but in those days, the whole idea was a freshman is not mature enough, all right, to play a full schedule. So freshman football team would play eight games, the varsity might play 12, you know, whatever Mm. it was. So got to remember, that was pretty expensive. So when I got the coaching job, at Towson State College, now Towson University in Baltimore, I was the head freshman football and the head freshman lacrosse coach. And that was an important job because we got them ready for varsity. We, mm-hmm. we were the go team. If, if Towson was playing Clemson next week, I'd be the Clemson offense, you know. And then 1972, Title IX came around. Mm-hmm. And Title IX, appropriately so, was that every dollar spent in college sport on a man needs to be spent on a woman. And the only way to get that money was to eliminate freshman teams. So every college team in America, every college team from the Ivy League schools to the Pac-10 eliminated freshman football, baseball, and basketball. Why? You can imagine what it would cost a college to have 75 varsity football players in uniform and 60 freshman football players in uniform. So I I was going to make my career coaching. 
and uh, got a phone call one day, moved into the athletic department, you know, director's office, and he said, guess what? We're eliminating the freshman team. We have an opportunity for you, Ira. You'll move over to varsity as a defensive back coach and maybe an assistant lacrosse coach. And, you know, I was going to continue, and I, I got an offer, an invitation to go out to Athens, Ohio, to meet with Ohio University. They were starting a lacrosse program. Oh, this was great, man. I want to be the yeah. head coach of a brand-new school. Those days, we didn't call them D1 or D2 or D3. Yeah. It was major and minor and so forth and so on. And they said, well, you know, here's the deal. We'd love you to start the program. We want you to be the head lacrosse coach. And oh, by the way, you do have to get a master's degree in three years. You're going to have to teach three (laughs) English courses and do a summer camp. And we proudly would like to give you $9,200. It seemed like a lot of money, (laughs) but it obviously wasn't. And of course, I turned to my dad, who was a business guy, and I said, what do you think? And he said, look, you know, you could go in business, you could go in the food business and get a job in sales, and they'd probably start you at 20, 22,000 a year and give you a Chevy Impala. <laughs> I love coaching. <laughs> and that was your and that was your forum into food industry. It, it was, so, but I, I couldn't but I couldn't leave teaching and I couldn't leave coaching. So, you know, I was uh, after playing a little World Cup lacrosse, I became a coach on the World Cup, you know, team and I, I started coaching uh, then we didn't have professional lacrosse other than Canada and, you know, started coaching what we had was as close to perfect called us club lacrosse and coached the New York lacrosse club. Okay. And was coach of the year and all this other stuff. And then, then uh, of course, needless to say, became an adjunct faculty member, you know, at colleges and universities. So I I stayed with teaching and coaching and obviously as you and I both know, continued coaching youth. So never really left it, but uh, yeah, that, that was my, uh, my entree into the food business was (laughs) I I decided (laughs) Ohio university, I remember their green logo very, very well. It's just not for me, and I'll be a food guy. And you walk into that world, and sports kicks in, and you work, and you perform, and you grind, and you push, and you were in all different facets of that industry, weren't you? Well, yeah. You know, in those days, if you're a good salesperson, you got promoted to marketing. Mm. And if you're a good marketing guy, you got promoted to management, right? Well. Over the years, you start realizing sales is a very different profession than marketing. And marketing is very different than management. A lot of different skills. But in those days, it was a lot of blur. You know, so I, I, was, I was blessed with the, you know, the experience of being able to be a sales guy. You know, I, I started out as a street sales guy in New York City. There was no car. I had a sample bag and walked up and down the street and knocked on doors and went wow. to restaurants and, and, and tried to sell them. But it was a great experience for me. And eventually, you know, got into national accounts and chain accounts and did some marketing stuff. And then, um, you know, was uh, uh, acquired, if you will, by Sara Lee, a division of Sara Lee. Many people are not aware of the fact that Sara Lee at one point was Hillshire Farm, Jimmy Dean, um, not only Sara Lee Baked Goods, but uh, Legs Pantyhose, Hanes Underwear, Bally Bras, Coach Leather, Shasta Be- It was a multifaceted. So, you know, when I, I say that I was an executive ultimately in Sara Lee, people think I was in the cheesecake business. No, I was in Hillshire. I was smoked sausage. I was the, wow. I was the, I was the meat meathead. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, but I, I got to experience a lot of different parts of that. And then, you know, eventually became president of a large food company in, in, uh, in Chicago and and uh, got very involved in the industry. So, yeah, I've been in the food industry a long, long time and a lot of different aspects of it. And, uh, you know, um, uh, and, it's, and, it's, and it's pretty good. But I, I never, ever spent a day, a week, a month of my life not coaching somebody, someplace, some team. You know, 
uh, driving in my car in New York City trying to change into my shorts and a T-shirt because I was going to do a lacrosse practice that yep. evening, okay? It's always been in my blood. It's, all, it's always in your blood, and it will be It will be forever because that is just who you are. Well, you know, that is I, just who you are. You know, I, I had a. I came close to, you know, I took some graduate courses. I was thinking about becoming a doc, you know, not a medical doctor, a yeah. PhD. I don't know that I would be prouder about being a PhD doctor than I am about being a coach. Right. Coach is the greatest title in the world. Coach, coach and dad are probably, you know, the best. They are the best. Yeah. They are the best. You work all those years in food service, and then you begin your own consulting company. And you begin now to travel, speak. I mean, it's morphed through the years since I've known you the last 20 plus years. How did how did you make that transition from I'm working for this company to now I'm ready to go out on my own and serve companies, but the risk of you know you 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 only eat what you kill. Yeah. So there's there's a couple of different you know ways to to address that. You know, first of all, looking back, I realized I never made those choices. Looking back, it was not about coincidence. It was not about luck. It was about God. And I really believe that because, you know, God makes no mistakes. You know, all the good and all the bad that happened in one's life happened for a reason. You know, most of the time we have, we're not smart enough to know what that reason is. And I think things that happen, happen for a reason. So here I am, um, an executive president of a company called Reimer Foods skyrocketing company. We had meat divisions in Chicago and seafood in Thailand and chicken in Arkansas. And, and, um, I always joke about this, but, uh, and I'm proud of it though, but I received the highest honor in the food industry, the key person with the Heisman of the industry, you know, and I was very proud of that. And I was proud of that for a couple of reasons because we said it earlier. Okay. About role models, you know, leaders, there was a guy with a potato company named John McArdle. God knows where John is today. But I saw him at a conference receive this award. I saw him go on stage. I saw him receive the highest honor in the industry. And I kind of said to myself, I want to be like Mike, you know. Mm. Every young basketball player wears Michael Jordan clothes years ago for one reason. And 20 years later, I I was him. And, And I found him to thank him. You know, he didn't know me from Adam. Yeah. And he was he was just flabbergasted that I even said to him he was a role model. I never met him. So what happened was I, I received this honor. It was funny because Kim and I, my, my bride Kim and I, um, hardly ever went to a conference without our kids. We were the we'd go to a national mm-hmm. convention and there'd be thousands of people there and it's always Kim and I are in the babies, you know. And we'd always get asked the same question, where are the boys? Or I mean we, that's the way we travel. We yep. have babysitters in Arizona and in Chicago. <laughs> so we were at this banquet. I had no expectation of winning, receiving this award. And Kim and I excused ourselves from the banquet table to go out in the hallway to call the babysitter to see how the kids were. We're in Phoenix, Arizona. And all of a sudden, we see people running all over there looking for me. Where's Ira? Where's Ira? You know, and, and what's going on? Well, you need to get back inside. And I'm going, well, why? You know, get back inside. You know, and of course, I you know, was surprised and shocked with that. So I woke up a couple of weeks later, and because of that honor, found myself on the cover you know, it was probably three magazines. Today, I tell them 12, 13 yeah. magazines. You know, I, it's just like we, all, we use our 15-year-old photo in all our bio shots. And I, all of a sudden, 
people calling me names that I had never been called because they said I was a visionary or they said, you know, guru or whatever, you know, before that I was jerk, idiot, yeah, you know? Yeah. And, and all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute now, I'm, I'm getting on stage speaking in the industry. That's how I started my speaking career, you know, not for pay. And I really liked how it felt. And I turned to Kim and I said, we've always worked for someone. I've always been an employee for someone. In the middle of recession, with two years left on an employment contract at a pre as a president of a public company, I resigned. Because I said, if ever there was a time to go on my own, now is the time, mm -hmm. you know, from a brand standpoint. And you talk about risk. And I learned this from Kim. It's a great lesson. And if, if anyone gets anything from this podcast, it's probably, this, this might be enough. I kept on thinking, you know, gee whiz, I have a really good job and benefits and a company car and I had an office in downtown Chicago and an office in our meat plant and I had a lot of people working for me and doing hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And I said, boy, this is a risk. You know, what do you think, honey? And somewhere along the line, Kim opened my eyes to, you have to ask yourself, is the, is the risk you're taking not doing that mm. greater risk? Mm. In other words, we always think about what's the risk I'm doing if I do this? That's right. But you got to ask yourself, what's the risk you're doing if you don't do this? And, you know, would you spend the next 30 years saying, gee, I should have done that? So we did. And, you know, I, I left. I resigned in the middle of recession, two years on an employment contract. But I had a good reputation. And I knew I'd figure something out. And I don't know what a consultant did. I mean, I just figured they just, yep. there's gold in the streets, you know. And I started my consulting business in Naperville, Illinois, in my laundry room. <laughs> and, and people would say, what's that noise in the background? I'd say, it was the copy machine. It was the dryer. <laughs> and I get a phone call because of something that I did and something that I created in Kansas City, Missouri, a, a food court from a little company in Atlanta, Coca-Cola. You might have heard of them. They got a yeah. red can, you know. And they came out and visited with me and said, we know your background. And we could really use you because we're in a battle. And I said, you're in a battle. What kind of battle? We're in a battle with Pepsi. And I'm thinking, am I missing something? I thought that's been around for a lot of decades. You know, that's not new, yeah. but it was new then because Pepsi owned restaurants. Pepsi mm. owned Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, and KFC. So it was no longer beverage versus beverage. It was beverage versus beverage restaurant. Mm. So we know your background, Ira. We'd love to talk to you about consulting to Coke. So here I am in a laundry room. That's my suite, my office suite. Yep. And Coca-Cola became my, my, really my very, very first client. And they only lasted 26 and a half years. Good. So, and you left as the longest tenured consultant yeah, with them, yeah, didn't yeah. you? Our records, you know, from what we've seen, no one's ever really, you know, people have done projects on and off for Coke, but no one's ever continually consulted to Coke for over 10, 12 years. We were continuous, continuously retained consultant for Coke for almost 27 years. You know, but... And I'm and, and Coke's done a lot for us, and we yep. feel like we know a lot for them. But but so that that but you know those things don't happen accidentally. No. Those those things happen. There's a reason for it all, you know. And of course, hey, Mike, I I wouldn't have you know I wouldn't have met you if That's I wasn't right. in Atlanta. Coca Cola took care of that. So it's all part of it's all part of those intersections. But um, you know, uh, so that that kind of gives you the segue into the food industry. We've we've worked, golly, we've you know helped develop McCafe and. Sydney, Australia. We helped put TGI Fridays in the frozen food cases supermarkets. We've we've created a lot of things along the way. Very proud of it. When I say we, I always say we because it's never I. It's mm. always been you know team sport. But um, 
been there, done that, been there, done that again, you know, from, from Dubai to you name it. So it's, it's, uh, I've been blessed. I've been blessed. And you really got a heart. You really got known in that industry in the branding world. I know you wrote a great book. We'll have a link to in our show note on brand you. What are some things about branding that you've learned in your years in business, especially working with some of the greatest brands on the planet? What are some things that 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 a person leading a school or a pastor leading a church or a coach leading a team or a leader in a business needs to know? Just some some highlights of things you've learned about branding through the years. Yeah, you know, and, and again, though, nothing's by accident. You know, I mentioned that. You know, I started getting on stage and speaking in the industry, you know, as a leader uh, in the industry. And then eventually, you know, became an MC or a host on various conferences. And I would introduce great speakers. You know, I'd introduce, you know, iconic speakers, you know, best-selling authors, you know. And I started noticing something about them, that every one of them had some discernible, sustainable point of uniqueness. Mm. Well, the good news is that also launched my speaking career and, you know, done 2,500 plus speeches on five continents. But I, I also realized that whether it was Zig Ziglar, okay, or whether it was George Bush, you know, whether it was Benazir Bhutto, the prime minister of Pakistan, okay, or Henry Kissinger, or people that I was around, Mikhail Gorbachev and others, Tommy Lasorda, every one of them had something unique about them. Mm. And being a music fan, you know, say, wait a minute now, Kiss is different than the Beatles. The Beatles came over with suits and ties and a mop hairdo and Kiss painted their faces and spit blood. Yep. And Mick Jagger's, you know, you see the the, the tongue and B.B. King would get on stage and throw jewelry. And, and then I'd hear, you know, the Zig Ziglar's of the world, okay, or the Hal Holbrook's of the world and others. And I started realizing something. Even though my career was focused on brands, McDonald's, Burger King, Cirque du Soleil, American Airlines, Coca-Cola, we worked with 150 of the top 200 restaurant brands in America in, on something. It dawned on me, too, that people are brands as well. Mm. You know, their demeanor, you know, not just how they look. So in long-winded answer to your question, Mike, what I've learned about brand is that most people think brand is about a symbol or a logo. It's not. Mm. Most people think it's about a slogan. It's not. Most people think brands are about colors. It's not. It was about the essence. Mm. It, it was the essence. You know, one of the most respected brands on the planet is right here in Atlanta called Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A has got a terrific logo. Chick-fil-A is not about the logo. Chick-fil-A is not about the trade dress or the colors. Okay? It's the essence of Chick-fil-A. Mm. Mm. Servant leadership. Those kids, their brand is not about it's my pleasure. That comes from the heart. You know, so I started realizing that the key to branding is about essence. It's about culture. It's about core. It's not about anything. Graphics are easy. You know, graphics are easy. Because that also takes us to a discussion you and I have had many times. What and who? Mm. The what is the visual? You know, what is a chicken joint? They sell chicken and Coca-Cola. <laughs> you know, the what is, you know, uh, their positioning. You know, you know, the cows are trying to tell you. You know, yeah. you know, uh, eat chicken. Well, but the who of Chick-fil-A, you know, whether it be the way they treat their people, the way they treat their customers, their philanthropy, you know, the essence of who they that's their brand. Yep. Chick-fil-A brand is not about a color or a vector. If, if I was a blind guy exposed to Chick-fil-A, 
I would know their brand without ever seeing a logo. I could right. feel it in the way, you know, you go to Chick-fil-A, it's raining outside and some kid behind the counter magically has an umbrella to walk you to your car. That's their brand. Yep. That that's their brand, you know. So so I, I would guess when you ask about what I've learned about branding, corporate product service and personal branding, it's about the essence. That's good. It's companies that care. It's people that care. And you know, uh, and and that's not always the easiest thing to do. You know, I have a uh, I have a a wonderful friendship with an iconic human being named Steven Tyler. Steven Tyler, an iconic rock star, going into his forty sixth year with Aerosmith. You know. Short career, right? Boy, when you get past what Steven is and you get to who he is, that's the Steven Tyler brand. Mm. He's a caring human being. He's a human being that wrote a song 26 years ago called Janie's Got a Gun. It was a huge hit, made millions of dollars, but it haunted him for 26 years because it was on a dismal subject about a, a girl who was raped by her father, went out and bought a gun and killed him. Who Steven is and what his brand is 26 years later, turned to people like Ira and Kim Blumenthal and others and said, I got to do something about that. We helped him create Janie's Fund to raise money for at-risk and sexually. That's who he is. Yeah. That's his brand. His brand is not about scarfs on a microphone. His brand is not about the demon of screaming. His brand's not about having to be in rehab a number of times, okay? His brand is about his heart. That's, mm. So hopefully that answers your question. That's, that's really good. That is, who, who do you want Ira's brand to be? If people are looking at you and people are figuring out who you are, who do you want? Who do you want them to know you as? <laughs> the essence of Ira Blumenthal. Well, that, that's a well, that's a tough question, and if I don't give it all right now, I have to call you back and do a second <laughs> pod because we always think about God. I should have said that, you know. There's a wonderful quotation: "Be yourself. Everyone else is taken." Mm. You know, um, you know when you're younger. You focus on the what, you know, boy, I just want to, I want a medal, you know, mm -hmm. I won the race or my team won a championship or I got an A in the paper, you know, or I got promoted and that's all important. I would want to be remembered and I would want to be thought of more in the who than the what, mm -hmm. you know, I would like people to always say that Ira has always announced he's the luckiest man on the planet. I am. I am. Luckiest man on the planet. I mean, you know, I'm not challenging Anne. She's a wonderful wife, but there's no wife like my wife. Mm. There's no kids like my kids. There's no friends like my friends. Mm. And there's no parents like my parents. So I would say, if I could, if I could write that closing remark, I would want to say he was the husband of husbands. He was the dad of dads. He was the grandpa or papa, depending on which grandchild we talk about, or papas. He was the friend of friends. Because in the end, and you've heard me say this before, it's not about toys. It's about joys. Mm. It, it, it's about love. So I would want to be respected because of the love that I, I shared with people I cared about, you know. And, uh, you know, it, 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 in the end, medals tarnish. Mm. Certificates get thrown away. Um, you know, all those things are fleeting. But I, I want to be remembered, you know, as a loving grandpa, mm. as a caring dad, you know, as a man who cries, as a husband who will take red eyes home from a business trip 
because he wanted to be with his wife. Mm. You know, that answer your question. Oh, yeah, more than. You know, Ira, felt good to me. Yeah, it, <laughs> that was that wasn't on the list either. I threw that one in. You know, you're world class at so many things, but probably one of the things I've respected most about you. We've gotten together pretty periodically throughout the last 20 years for lunch, and and I usually have my notebook and and write down my Iraisms. And right. what one of the things I love, if you don't know Ira. One of the things I love most about you is how you stretch people and how you push people. I never left lunch with just a pat on the back. I left with something a little further out I had to go chase. And that's one of my favorite things that's about nice to hear. you. That's nice to hear. And one of the things you're world class about, and I respect you most about, is who you are as a husband, who you are as a father. How did you balance that while still striving to be the best in your career? Well, you know, I, I, I'm going to just give you one segue and then answer your question directly. I think it does indirectly because, you know, you made a nice comment, okay, about, you know, the stretching and the coaching. You see, the folks in Ohio University didn't realize that I didn't take their job, but I, I continued to coach. Mm -hmm. That's all I am. Mm -hmm. That's all I am. And, and you know, it, it warms my heart to hear you, and, and you're someone I, I respect dearly as a friend, as a mentor, you know, as, as someone that's really been an influencer in my life and a role model in my life, Mike, to say that I've had an effect on you, because you have it certainly on me. Um, I don't know why, and I don't know how, and it could have been my parents, it, it could have been the air, it could have been what. I've always taken being a husband and being a father as the most important job of my life, period, done, end of story. You know, we've had offers to relocate to cities. We've had offers to, you know, different. And it was always about the kids. I and mean, we, we came to Atlanta when Coca-Cola moved us to Atlanta. And, and Kim will validate the story. We looked for a baseball field before we looked for a house. Mm. Because that was more important to me. You know, so you ask the question about balance. It's never been a challenge to me. Mm. Because it was, never, it was never a choice. You know, I stupidly bought a house on a golf course because <laughs> I was going to convince myself that I'm going to be a golfer. I couldn't justify going away to work, sometimes traveling, coming back on a Friday maybe, and kissing my kids goodbye on Saturday morning and playing golf with the guys for five hours. Couldn't do it. There's no way. Why would I do that? You know? So I shared the story with you. We were, we, all, we were members of a golf course for 25 years. We played 20 times. Why? It was more important getting Georgia red clay on my socks and being out there with my kids and coaching them to be with them. Mm. Never been a balance. I, I mentioned earlier, I can't tell you until the kids were old enough where they couldn't take off time of school. There was hardly a convention that we went to where I didn't take my wife and kids. I didn't want to go to Scottsdale, Arizona and be there for three or four days and have dinner with the guys and go out drinking with the guys and sit around and watch a football game with the guys. Not that that was bad, but my, my, my wife and my kids were more, more important than that. They're my life. They're my life. So, you know, it's funny when people ask you how you balance. I don't know how I balance, but I did. You know, it's kind of like if I thought about it, I'd probably talk myself out of being able to do it. That's I remember right. I, vividly, vividly, and Kim tells the story better than I. We were coaching over at Oregon Park here in, you know, in Atlanta. And my team was going into the playoffs. And I had three speeches in a row, real number, three days in a row in Chicago at the National Restaurant Association, three different days. So I got up on whatever the day it was, Tuesday, and I took an early bird to Chicago. I made my luncheon speech, got on a plane, came back, and coached that night. Then took an early bird. I did three days in a row. 
Now, Kim would tell me, don't tell the neighbors. They're going to think you're out of your mind. You're nuts. <laughs> As if that team couldn't have played without that's me. That's right. You know? That's right. But the greatest thing that, that, that happened, even that experience, was my kids didn't even know I was God. Yep. All they knew is dad was back on third base trying to figure out a way to get a runner home. So to me, it's never been about balance. If you set your priority, your balance falls into place. Mm. You know, you can't make your family, your spouse, your significant other, and your kids an option. You can't. You know, I, I, I'm trying to think who it was. I think it was Maya Angelou once said, don't ever make someone your priority when to them you're only an option. Mm. Well, my kids, my family, my wife, never never been an option. So, you know, I don't know that I physically had strategy on how I'm going to balance this. I just had to figure it out. Yeah. And there were times when I couldn't get back for a birthday and there was times I couldn't. I mean, that happens in your life. But, you know, I'm not going to mention who, but I have a relative who once said to me, when your kids get older and they're empty nesters, you're lucky if you see them a couple of times a year. You're lucky if you can speak to them. Now, I don't know if my kids like this. (laughs) I probably speak to my three sons Every day, if not every other day. And two of them are in their 30s. One's in his mid-20s. That's just been my priority. There's nothing more important. You could turn around today and say, here's a check for $10 million. I want you to do this and go here, but you can't see your family for six months. I'm I'm not interested. I'm not. So I, I, I guess my answer to your question is, Anyone that wants to achieve balance needs to achieve priority first. Figure your priorities first, mm. and the balance will fall in place. Boy, that's so good. That is so good. And, and probably, Ira, of all the notes I've ever taken, and all the little things I've written in, and the books you've had me read, and the things I've come back to tell you, I've learned more from that than I have anything else watching you. And it's one of your greatest gifts to me was what you have done with your kids and what you've done with Kim and the way you esteem her and the way you love them. And I get to see it firsthand. I get to know, I know your, know your sons. I know your precious spouse and, and getting to watch that. It was just who you were. And it's one of the things that marked me the most. Well, I I really appreciate you saying that because, you know, you're on my, you know, my, my top respect list. Okay, Mike. And I say that not because, we're on air. You are. You, you always have been, you know, for a lot of reasons. One is you've you've let me as a coach beat you so many times. It was, I can't. <laughs> we thank, you we don't cover that in here. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, it's, you know, it's interesting, though. You made a statement about Kim. Kim. <laughs> this wouldn't happen without Kim. It, it wouldn't. You see, Kim was accused by her parents when she was a little girl growing up in farm country in Missouri as always bringing home a stray cat. Always bringing home a bird with a broken wing. Always bringing a, a puppy she found and with no mother. That's all I am. <laughs> she, I, I, let me tell you something. I would not be who I am, hmm. what I am, where I am without her. So I'm just another puppy that, you know, and, and, and you know, it's funny. Uh, we'll soon be married almost 37 years. But, you know, when we hit 25, we went to Las Vegas with the kids and we renewed our vows at the Little White Chapel, which is interesting. I got to tell you this, Pastor Mike, oldest son, Eric, 34 years old. Remember that expression, what they see is what they'll be? He goes on a trip to Las Vegas last weekend and he and Brittany renewed their (laughs) vows. Where do you think they got that from? I, that's it. But so Kim and I renewed our vows at 25 years, and I was just shocked that she signed up for another tour of duty. I that is she's so good. But you know, it, it's um, 
you know, because it, it was funny. When I received the award I told you about earlier, I got on stage and I thanked the wind beneath my wings. It was a hot song then because Kim is. None of us get to where we are. You know, I, if, if, I'm, if I'm a good parent, it's probably because my parents were good parents. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm a good person, it's probably because I'm hanging around with my wife, who's a good person. You know, it's all about those right. intersections. Yeah. A couple of years ago, you went through a pretty seismic shift in your life spiritually. Gaining weight? <laughs> no, that would be a negatory. <laughs> and, you know, I know it was something you really, you knew you needed to do, but you struggle with. Walk us through a little bit about that spiritual spiritual step that you made a few years ago and now the the new path that you're on well you know timing is everything in life you know and and you know there there are people that get things when they're 10 and there are people that get things when they're 50 and there are some people that get things when they're 70 and some people never get it that's right you know and uh you know i was you know i I, and i do want to say this uh you know to god country and everyone that's listening to the podcast you know Although you're talking to a guy soon to be 72, I can still beat you in a race. I I really can't. But um, the greatest compliment I get from my children is you're so immature, Dad. And I like that. So Mm. Mark Twain once said, age is about mind over matter. If you don't mind, it doesn't matter. That's right. You know, everyone's got to get older. That doesn't mean you have to be old. So at 68 years old, you know, I I was just sitting back and, and thinking about my life. You know, and I, I thought about it for a lot of reasons. My best friend passed away. I just came back from delivering a eulogy. And, you know, you start coming to grips with your own mortality. And I looked around and said, you know, you know, for a kid who struggled in college to try to get a, a C, I did okay, yep. you know. And I, I look back on some of the things that I had in my life. An, an amazing wife, an amazing wife, an amazing wife, amazing kids, amazing family, cultural background. I was very proud of my career, what I've done, where I've been. And I, I look back and I, I thought, gee, man, I've been blessed. But I didn't know who to thank. Mm. I, I didn't know who to thank. Because mm. I believed in God. I didn't know when God was big, little, wide, skinny, upstairs, downstairs, you know, male, female. I, I knew there was something. I, You know, I don't believe that the Big Bang Theory, you know, someone had a hand in it, but, and I was raised in New York, Long Island, you know, in a Jewish family, and we weren't very religious, but we were very culturally oriented, Mm. you know, we, we did all the holidays, you know, we gave the presents out at Hanukkah, you know, Um, we liked the music, we liked breaking the glass at weddings, you know, loved the humor, Mm -hmm. I loved everything about it, but it didn't connect me to God, and I went through a struggle, and Mike, you, you of all people know, I mean, you know, it took me a long time. I mean, you and I probably had lunch over a 15-year period of time, and we'd have a similar discussion. Yeah. And I was always closer, but it was not nowhere near, it was incremental, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I got an inch closer, you know, and we'd have all these debates. And I, I just decided it was time to go on a pilgrimage. So... I didn't read all of the Old Testament. I didn't read all of the New Testament. I read excerpts, you know, the the cliff notes, you know, which is a lot easier, obviously. It's what I did in college. A little bit of Old Testament, a little bit of New Testament, pieces of the Koran, pieces of the Book of Mormon, met with a guru, took my wife to a painful experience, not attacking anyone, but a painful experience called Jews for Jesus meetings. 
and read books you gave me and read books other people, the case for Christianity and the, and the case for insanity and the, yeah. you know, you name it. I, I, every case, I had every case. And the more I read, the more confused I was. Hmm. And, but I was searching. I, I was longing, you know, and, and I, I didn't know where it was. And, you know, and I have to credit you, Mike, because, you know, uh, as, as a coach, especially in the sport of lacrosse, I would always celebrate assists, not goals. Mm. Goals are easy. Goals happen because someone made a good pass. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, and, you know, and you, you're, you're on the assist list in, in, in Ira's life. You said something to me that I thought was really interesting. And you said you're thinking about it too hard. You know, you got to blend your heart with your head here a little bit. Because on a pragmatic basis, I have not been to the Red Sea, but I was raised on the ocean. I was raised in a town called Oceanside. I know what the ocean looks like. It's hard for me to vision that that thing parted and 100,000 people went through it and the bad guys then got trapped. And it, it's just hard for me to, right. you know, from a, it, it's hard for me to think that Jonas Salk, who was a Jewish guy who cured polio, wouldn't go to heaven because he didn't accept, it was hard for me to, right. to wrap my arms around things, I'm not criticizing it, but I never, never opened my heart up. Mm. So Mike Lynch, former, well, still baseball coach, competitive coach, as well as a dear friend, created probably the greatest metaphor that I've ever heard in my life. And I've been, you know, it, you know, I have a friend who's, you know, Larry David was a fraternity brother of mine, Seinfeld, Kirby Enthusiasm, Steven Tyler. I traveled with Colin Powell. I opened for both President Bushes. I had a relationship with Ted Turner. I've been around some pretty smart people. I've never heard anybody with the metaphor Mike Lynch threw at me. God's got you in a rundown between third and home. I was back and forth and back and forth. And whether you're a baseball fan or not, you've all seen that game pickle or that game rundown. And you go back and then you go back and you go back and back and back and back and back. And, and you know, you know that the goal in a rundown is to be safe. And if you could be safe at third or home, you're going to take home. Home is where mom is and milk and cookies. Mm -hmm. Home is where you score a run. And in, in the spiritual sense, home is heaven. Mm -hmm. And I knew I wanted to be safe. But I realized that when kids stop the rundown and get tagged out, their legs get tired. Mm. And I remember <laughs> in, the, in the middle of the night, <laughs> my legs were tired. And I called you, Mike, and I said, my legs are tired. Mm. And I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I scored. Mm. It wasn't even close. The ball wasn't even near the plate and the catcher. There wasn't even, there was no need to slide. I stood yep. up going through home. And um, it was an amazing experience. I felt like a thousand pound weight was taken off my chest. I felt like I was where I needed to be my whole life. It just took me 68 years to get there. Yep. And, and that's okay. That's okay. And, um, uh, Never been the same since. Mm. It was singularly the most important thing that I've done in my own personal life. And it was tough, though, Mike, because you talk about a seismic shift. I'm not a, I'm not a martyr. I'm not a saint, you know. 
But I, I always work to try to do things for people, always, you know, you know, not a good boy, you know, but, oh, and I've made a lot of mistakes. That's another podcast. <laughs> that may be three podcasts. Yeah. But you know what? When I started thinking about myself and this seismic shift, as you said, I felt guilty because I wasn't thinking about my sons or my wife. I wasn't thinking about my mom and dad. I wasn't thinking about my culture, my grandparents. I wasn't thinking about ants that were in the concentration camps. I wasn't thinking about any of that. I was thinking about Ira, and it bothered me because I didn't want to be that way. I wanted mm-hmm. to be more. I wanted, I wanted to make sure that my brother thought this was a good, good idea or yeah. approval-wise. It was the first time in my life that I was alone in the arena as a guy who always played a team sport. But it was important. It was the most important thing I've ever done. So. Uh, Hope that answered your question. Uh, it sure did. What is the biggest thing about it, that decision that changed you and how you lead now? It, did you see a shift in, wow, look at things differently yeah. than I did before? In what way? Well, I, I, a couple of ways. I think one way was, you know, as you, you know, I never thought I'd say this. I never thought I'd do this. I now kind of ask myself, what would Jesus do? Mm. You know, I've had, like every one of your listeners, good days and bad days. I've dealt with good people and bad people. I've had things that have happened to me that were fair and that were unfair. Mm -hmm. And you react and you say, what would Jesus do? Mm. Well, probably turn the cheek or probably turn around and say hello to someone that you really don't respect Mm. and ask him how his kids are. Or maybe stop and help someone that normally you just drive by and try not to make eye contact with, you know, because if you made eye contact, you'd almost feel like you'd have to help them. You know, so I I think what it did was it made me think a lot more holistically. You know, it made me also realize, too, that as painful as some of the things that happen in life, you know, death of a friend or, or, or having a kid that you coach pass away from cancer or whatever it was, it didn't erase the sadness that we have as humans, but it made me look at it a little bit more from a cerebral or mm-hmm. pragmatic standpoint mm-hmm. that, you know, th- th- there's a reason, you know, I mean, what a sad thing that this young man passed away or what a sad thing that this guy lost his job or whatever. But you, you sometimes think maybe in the end that's, that might've been the best, or maybe, mm-hmm. maybe what happened to that young man might affect you know, and I'm not going into any depth, but, you know, I even think about, you know, I think about one young man, you and I both knew who died from cancer. I think of one young man who died from an overdose, you know, and you think, well, you know, I, I wonder if that young man that died from an overdose was a wake-up call to save a thousand lives because someone might have learned from it. So I, I guess when you ask the question, it affected me in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it also affected me in a way that my eyes are open Mm. and my ears are open and my mind is open more than it ever has. And the more that I keep it open, the more God gives me signals. Mike, as you may recall, I made the decision to get baptized. Mm -hmm. Well, my friend Mike said, hey, we're having baptism at the church. Come on, (laughs) come on stage and jump in a bathtub or something. Or then you went to the lake. And I just read about baptism, and I thought, wait a minute now. If I'm not going to get baptized in the ocean, I'm not getting baptized. You know, getting baptized, and I'm not knocking anyone who gets baptized in a bathtub. I'm not being, you know, a bathtub prejudice guy. I just decided I needed to get baptized 
in the ocean. That's where's, that's yep. God's that's God's bathtub. Yep. So you were not available. I have another friend who's a minister from Richmond. He came down, and I always remember this. So we're going out to the Atlantic Ocean, you know, South Carolina, and there were a couple of shark attacks that week. So I told my three sons, I want you guys on the deep ocean side of the baptism, because if there's a shark attack, not that I want to sacrifice my kids, <laughs> if I get attacked by a shark getting baptized, it will set back religion hundreds of years. <laughs> it's better you guys get it than the guy being baptized. That's right. So as we're walking out, we see a sign, swim at your own risk, no lifeguard. So my, my dear friend, Wynn Davis, baptizing me, he said, you know, it's appropriate, Ira, for you to say something before we baptize you, anything you want to say. And, and, I, and I, I, I didn't write it. I didn't script it. I, I just intuitively realized I've been coming to this beach for 26 years, and I don't think I ever noticed that sign. <laughs> and I said, you know, when, for the first time in my life, I saw that sign, and I, I don't need to swim my own risk because I got the greatest lifeguard of That's all. That's awesome. And he baptized me. Now, interesting moment. We go back to the blanket, you know, I'm baptized because we had a little, little, you know, piece of bread and wine and, you yeah. know, all that stuff, right? And with all the kids and stuff. And my soon, she's now a daughter-in-law, but my soon-to-be daughter-in-law, then Amanda, went up to the pavilion, you know, to get us adult beverages to celebrate the baptism. <laughs> hey, they drank wine back in the old days, right? And she came back shaking. This is 20 minutes later. Shaking. I still have the picture on my phone. She said, Dad, Dad, you got to come with me. I said, why? I walked to the pavilion after your baptism, 20 minutes later, and there was a man sitting on a beach chair, the first person I saw at the pavilion, and he was wearing a T-shirt, and the T-shirt had a red cross on it, and it said, my lifeguard walks on water. Wow. That's not an accident. Right. Give me a break. Uh, we went to speak to him. And I, I said, this is amazing. I just said something like that, and I just got baptized. And he started crying. And he said, I'm not supposed to be here. I said, why? He said, I've been fighting a battle with cancer. And I was losing. And my life turned around. This is my first time with my family. Wow. The, the, two, of, the two of us bonded. He lives in Asheville. Um, that, that's God. Mm. That, that, that's about God. It was also God. And we became friends. And I tried to, you know, not, not real big friends, but, you know, I told him he made my day. He told me I made his. So, yeah, it was seismic. It was, it was seismic. It was very important. And, you know, I didn't want anyone to say to me, good job you know, way to go. People congratulated me. Right. It almost seems silly to hear that. Yeah. But when my kids said, they're proud of me. That was worth getting my head pushed under the salt water from there. So mm. yeah, it, it was a, it was a, an amazing time in my life. It was so funny, you know, after that, our conversations turned to, now I want to know my purpose. I want to know why I'm here. I want to I want to find something bigger than me to work for now. And you found it. I remember all those conversations and I would say, "Man, it's going to come, Ira. You're going to you're going to know." And then you get a call from the Pat Summit group 
about an opportunity to take this legendary college basketball coach, the winningest coach, one of the winningest coaches in history, um, and take her life and celebrate it. And I remember you telling me after you began your work as the as the uh, you and Kim leading the Pat Summit Leadership Group, you went, I found, I found it. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Tell everybody a little bit about what all's been going on with that and why you felt like this is this is what's going to occupy my time for these next few years. Yeah, and and it, it's it, it's a story that probably shouldn't have happened. I mean, there was no look. I, I respect women a great deal, I, but I I never thought I'd be in a position of participating in a, in, in gender equality and in, in terms of that. Uh, and there was no group. There, you know, we didn't get a phone call from a group. We got a phone call ultimately from a young man named Tyler Summit, Pat Summit's son. Talk about a loving, caring son, not about money. He wanted to figure out a way that he can continue his mom's legacy, but he mm-hmm. didn't know how, and mm-hmm. he needed help. And through the intersections of business and life, he got to us, and Kim and I met with Tyler, and and uh, we knew a little bit about Pat. You know, certainly knew she was an iconic coach, but, you know, I had three boys playing college basketball, kind of was more on the men's side than the women's mm-hmm. side. And we sat down with this young man, and... and uh, he said, look, you know, we'd love to help you. I don't know if we can. You know, branding a product or a service or a corporation is what we do. Branding an individual, we've done a little bit of, but it's difficult. It's even more difficult when the person is, is passed on. You know, I mean, she passed away from Alzheimer's. So uh, he's a young man, my, my kid's age. How do I say no? Mm. I'm a coach. You know, I got to be there to help. You know, I can't say, sorry. Yep. And it was no longer about business. So we said to Tyler, give us 30 days. Give us a list of people you want us to talk to. Let me, let me build a brain around your mom. And um, if we can help you, we will. If we can't help you, we'll try to help you find someone who can. I just don't know. We went out to the West Coast and met with the Wooden folks, John Wooden's family. We met with Billy Moore, who was Pat Summit's Olympic coach and the first national championship women's coach. We had dialogue with Robin Roberts from ABC's Good Morning America. We've had contact with, you know, the head of ESPN and NCAA. And we spoke to coaches and players and, you know, from Candace Parker to Shamika Holsclaw, you know, to, to you name it. Even had dialogue with Reese Witherspoon's group and others. And we found out something interesting about Pat. She wasn't just an iconic coach. She didn't have players or friends or colleagues. She had disciples. Mm. I mean, we just sit with Robin Roberts. Robin Roberts, Mike, says good morning to 60 million Americans every day. And Robin Roberts in New York City, snow coming down around us, Tyler Summit, myself and Kim, and Robin said, as my friend Pat used to say, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm. Well. Many things in life will catch your eye. Only a few will catch your heart. Mm. Pat Summit's life caught our heart. Not only was she the winningest coach in college basketball history, she had three New York Times bestsellers, one of which was number one. Smithsonian Institute published a list of the top 100 coaches of all time, all sports in America, from Newt Rockne, you name it, one woman on the list. The top 50 books written on leadership, one woman, Pat Summit. Time Magazine changes from man of the year to person of the year. It's her face on the cover. 
on the cover of U.S. News and World Report as the Mother of the Year. She had three congressional, you know, awards from from Reagan and Clinton and Obama. She is the only, you know, only American in, in the world of athletics to win a, a medal in the Olympics as a player and as a coach. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. Shattered the glass ceiling. Champion of of gender equality. A coach that coached for 38 years and graduated 100% of her players. 100%. Unbelievable. And I can go on and on and on. And with what was going on with the world of women, it was God saying, we need to do something about Mm. this. So my wife, Kim, and I turned to Tyler, who said, I'd like to start Pat Summit Enterprises. And I said, no, I'm a branding guy. Enterprises means you're selling bobblehead dolls. Your mom is about leadership. And funny thing is... uh, Pat created the definite dozen, which is 10, you know, principles of success and leadership. And I set a goal that I wanted to see Stephen Covey's Seven Habits right alongside Pat Summit because it was time. Women all around the world are reading Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Not that it's bad. It's wonderful. But guess what? Let's get something generated by a woman, written by a woman, woman Mm -hmm. leader. So I walked into the network of executive women's office in Chicago, Sarah Alter, the CEO, and she said something to the effect of, so you're the guy that wants to move Stephen Covey over and put Pat Summit alongside. I said, that would be me. Um, so we jumped in this thing. We created the leadership group with three different lines of business. One is film, one is education, and one is publication. And uh, 13 months later, uh, we're, we're thrilled with the progress. But it's just been amazing to be part of seeing a champion for girls and women. And our whole mission is real simple. We are focused on educating and inspiring girls and women in leadership. Mm. So we're working with elementary and middle school kids. We're working with high school kids. We're working with college athletes. We're working with business women. We have an online program. We're publishing books. Uh, and we're also uh, going to have a major motion picture. So it's been Mark Twain's quote came back. The two most important days in your life are the day you were born mm. and the day you found out why. So um, this is our why. It's our why. What's next for you? So here you are in the in the middle of this huge endeavor. What's next for Ira Blumenthal? <laughs> what a great question. You know, yes, yes, tough. You want to do a podcast? <laughs> well, I want to see the Pat Summit Leadership Group get on to where it is. I feel good about where we are with Janie's Fund. We raised $2.3 million in a day in L.A. Wow. about a year ago for, for girls. You know, I, I, I think that... You know, I got a couple of years on you, Mike, so I was raised with cowboy TV, you know? We used to watch, you know, Hopalong Cassidy yeah. and The Lone Ranger, you know? And, and isn't it interesting that The Lone Ranger would come into a town and he would, he would help whoever needed help and he'd leave town and go to the next <laughs> town. So I don't know where I'm riding to next, but, you know, it, it, it's, it can't be about anything other than passion. I'm passionate about the Pat Summit Leadership Group. I'm passionate about Janie's Fund. I was passionate about my coaching. I don't know, there's hardly anything I've ever done in my life that wasn't passion-based. And if it wasn't passion-based, I kind of walked away from it. So in answer to your question, will there be something else? Sure. What it will be, I don't know. But it has to be based in passion. It has to be important. And it has to be a way that an old coach who walked away from a whopping $9,000 salary (laughs) Okay. And continue. See, I I tell Kim, you know, some of my buddies who stayed in coaching, you know, they coached at Maryland and Navy and Army and Johns Hopkins and Virginia and Cornell and other places. And some of them are retiring now a couple of years ago. And I would have been doing the same thing. 
And I said, gee, you know, honey, boy, if I only would have stayed in coaching, you know, maybe I could have been the head coach at Maryland or Navy or Colorado or someplace. Maybe I'd be retiring now. And, you know, I, I guess I probably should have stayed in coaching. And my brilliant, very wise wife said, you don't wear a whistle around your neck. You're not wearing shorts and T-shirts. You don't have a clipboard in your hand, but you've never stopped coaching. So my answer to you, Mike, is there's somebody out there, whether it's a company or a person or a movement or a church or a whatever it is, that's going to need a little bit of coaching, you know, and uh, and I'm open. That doesn't mean that people listening to the podcast should give me a call. I'm really busy right now. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, it, that, that's kind of what I'm thinking. I hope you enjoyed that time with Ira as much as I did. Thinker, leader, but man, what a mind and what a heart for leadership. And what I love about Ira is, man, I know his faith is a new faith, but boy, you can see it alive and well as he is learning and growing and all that God has for him. And he's just one of those people that makes your life better. And he's one of those people that uses his life to encourage your life. Man, I'm excited to announce today that Ira's brand new book, Your Best is Next, How to Live Your Fullest Life During Your Gun Lap. As you're finishing your journey, how do you live out the best life that God has for you? And that's what his new book's about. You can go to Amazon and order that. Your best is next. How to live your fullest life during your gun lap by Ira Blumenthal. We'll put a link in our show notes as well and make sure that you're able to order that. I hope you enjoyed that time with Ira. Anything he puts out is gold and I hope you'll pick it up. Well, our next episode, we're going to be with another leader, a lot like Ira, another gentleman that has used his life to make your life better. Dr. Sam Chand, his new book, New Thinking, New Future is just out. And we're going to be talking together about leaders that are coming next. And I hope you'll go and pick up a copy. And I hope you'll also join us on our next episode of Lynch with a Leader. If you've enjoyed our time together, leave a review if you could. It does help others find their way to us. And until we join each other again, Go be the leader that God created you to be in the space and the place that he put you. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com. 